Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Basti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the best from last week's episode. Joining me on the show this week were multiple Olympic and world champion Victoria Pendleton, talking not only about her cycling career, but more importantly about her love for racehorses three years on from when she rode Pasha to Polder into fifth place in the Cheltenham Fox Hunters. She was a brilliant and engaging guest. I was also joined on the show by the chief executive of the Racehorse Owners Association, Charlie Liverton. An important week for Liverton, particularly in light of the ongoing prize money row between the Horsemen and the ARC group of racecourses. My other guests on the show were Luck on Sunday regular Neil Channing and, for the first time, Tim Vaughan. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Delighted to welcome as my first guest a man who has been Chief Executive of the Racehorse Association since 2016, prior to which he worked in the city as a global account manager. He was a bloodstock insurance broker. He had been in his youth, relative youth I should say, uh, a pupil assistant to the legendary Major Dick Hearn and Richard Hannon. And he now holds one of the most important jobs in racing, particularly in this pivotal week for the funding of the sport. He has a huge membership of around 8,000 owners to whom he has to answer all all queries, and I would imagine this week he has the biggest intray of just about anybody in the sport. He is, of course, Charlie Liverton. Charlie, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Uh, I dare say you must be pretty exhausted after what's been a pretty demanding week for all horsemen and anyone involved in this prize money debate that rolls on and on. Absolutely, Nick. Um, it has been a very busy week. Um, it's been a very constructive week, um, and we've had a lot of correspondence from our members it started off really um, back uh, back earlier this year um, when ARC made that initial announcement just before Christmas, and that really was the start of of, of the problems that we that we see today culminating in the in the strikes, effectively. And that was the initial announcement that they would not supply the extra funding to go on top of the minimum value that would trigger an unlocking of the levy board money that would bolster Class 4, 5 and 6 races prize money. So they were, they were unprepared to do that, and their reasoning for not being prepared to do that, as we've heard from Martin Crudders, is because of shop closures owing to the fixed-odds betting terminal legislation, and that meant they felt that their media rights payments were not going to be sufficient to sustain those contributions. That's, that's just Absolutely. about the bones of it, isn't it? Absolutely, Nick. And I, and I think the timing of the message was, was difficult for horsemen to take as well, given that we'd spent in the region of 250 to 300 million pounds at the yearling sales and horses in training sales to fill boxes in order that we could race our horses in their fixture list for them to derive that income through their media rights deals. So the timing of the message was very difficult for Stomach. But I think if we take it back a step to the other issue we have here is that ARC has got one deal with their media rights that sees a direct impact every time a shop closes, effectively, is what we're told. You then have another deal 
where with with another racecourse group, racecourse media group, racecourse media group, whereby there's a buffer zone. We understand, or actually, the first five hundred thousand shops that closes doesn't have any material impact, and then you have a third media contract um, whereby they get less media rights income, but there's no impact whatsoever. So you've got this situation where you've got three different media rights contracts going on amongst racecourses that will impact them all at different times. So you said the first 500,000 shops. I'm guessing Sorry, you the first, first 500, 500, 500 shops. First 500 or 1,000 shops. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what the details of the, of, the, of the contracts are. And that, again, is one of the critical points that horsemen are really struggling with. The clarity around what those contracts are and the level of trust now around what the actual income is that's being delivered um, is on very stony ground. And yes, the members that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to well over 100 members in the past week or 10 days about this, they are so angry at the way in which they feel that they've been treated over the past few years. And this is, this is but a mere culmination of that frustration. And ultimately, for some, it is the straw that has broken the camel's back. And we are seeing owners saying, as a direct consequence of this, that they will not be retaining the horses in training going forward that they thought they would be. Take this right down to basics. Why are owners entitled to prize money at a certain level? This is, this is a Absolutely. hobby. If, of, of course it's a hobby, Nick. Absolutely it is. But I think it's a hobby for horsemen, um, but a money-making machine over here. And what we're asking for are two things, really. One is a, a, a joint venture that is true to its word, where there is transparency and clarity around that, that, that joint venture. But secondly... Prize money isn't just for owners. It is what feeds the industry. The stable staff, the jockeys, the trainers all get paid through that prize money mechanism. Now, if we want to have that discussion around whether prize money and the prize money mechanism is the right one today going forward, we're all ears. But isn't prize money essentially cream on top? Isn't what sustains the industry essentially training fees? and betting revenue. So training fees from owners to trainers, that pays stable staff. A betting revenue is what essentially funds the industry. Absolutely. But if we're paying somewhere in the region of 700 to 750 million pounds a year so that another group of individuals can take the media rights and every other income stream that is derived from staging a race meeting, um, then that's simply, not, that's simply not acceptable. More pertinently, Yes, racing is fun and it is meant to be an experience and it is meant to be enjoyable. But the two major reasons why owners leave the sport is because of prize money, firstly, and because of the race day experience, secondly. That rounded experience is what's going to retain your owners. And the minute owners feel that they're not getting fair reward for the product that they're taking to the race course, then you will see what you've seen over the last 10 years, which is a reduction in horses of training of about a 1,000. So what fundamentally for you has ARC done wrong, if anything? How could Martin Crudders and his team have played this any differently to your satisfaction, given the backdrop 
of the shop mm. closures. So we've been talking about the implication of the FOBTI decision um, in industry meetings for about the last 18 months since it got raised onto government's agenda. And there was a lot of discussion around, was it going to hit 30 quid? Was it going to hit two quid? And the discussions um, were, were completely understood by, by the horsemen as to the, the stark reality of the headwinds that were going to approaching. Were government going to make that decision? For me, what ARC did was, was came out with a message without helping horsemen send that message out that actually we've got a race course group here whose media rights contract is such that the implication is here and now. It's not down the line. You've so, got... so you feel they didn't give people fair warning of their intention? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you're right. Now, one of the other things that horsemen have been hugely frustrated with in the ROA, and certainly the last three years since I've been in the role, is, is raising minimum values. And race courses simply have not risen minimum values. And this race is all, values, all race courses across the board. All race courses across the board. Absolutely, all race courses across the board. And ARC's situation just happens to be first before the others are coming down the line. So let's not think that what's happening today isn't going to happen further down the line because we're in some pretty strong headwinds, and that's been un under no illusion about that. But the, um, the minimum values piece... I think is really, really important. We always talk about minimum values. We never talk about maximum values and how many races are, are run at maximum values. And there are some race courses that do. Newton Abbott is a very good example where actually majority of their races are run at maximum value. So the way in which we put more money into that middle and lower tier in order to help the retention of owners and get more money back into grassroots racing was through the appearance money scheme. Now, the appearance money scheme did not see minimum values go up. It saw the race values go up. Mm -hmm. And they are two fundamentally different things. And so you still have the conversations that I've won this race in 2018, 2019, and it's 2,800 to the winner. I won it 15 years ago, and it was 2,800 quid. And race courses have to work with horsemen now to understand that the perception out there that the that, that prize fund has gone up, and it really has, to 160 million last year in total. But minimum values have stayed the same, and we simply cannot carry on with that model. So how do you restructure the model? The last week we've seen any number of trainers in particular, but some owners say this yeah. is not acceptable, this is an unsustainable situation, but nobody has offered a cohesive solution to restructuring no. the model. And so uh, this is your yes, opportunity. No, and I to will do say so. that these discussions have been going on and, and are going on. And we, we started these um, before the new year, actually. And, and it was hoped that we were going to be able to sit down as an industry in early January and, and, and start, that, start those. But sadly, that didn't, um, those didn't take place. Um, but there is, a, there is a process that is undergoing through the fiction funding process and at a higher level, that these kinds of conversations are taking place. The crux of the reality is, is that the race courses own the fixture mm -hmm. list. So anything that we think is a really good idea that will enhance the owner's experience, that will, and, and by that I mean through the prize money mechanism and the distribution, not just the total pot, but how it's distributed to the race course experience itself, 
has to come with the blessing of the racecourses. And we need, we need racecourses to recognise that the model that we've, that we've rolled with that has been developed through the deals that they have in place with bookmakers have changed fundamentally. Those sands have, have shifted fundamentally now. And how we've, how we've done our business historically is not a fair reflection, I don't believe, of how we're going to be, well, how we have to do it going forward. And I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's utopia, but there has to be a transparent pooling system of the industry's media rights. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Our special guest, Victoria Pendleton, still to come on this morning's programme. Charlie Liverton, the Chief Executive of the Racehorse Owners Association, still with us. And he has been joined by trainer Tim Vaughan, his first appearance on the show. And I was going to say regular, but people get very cross by irregular. Irregular, irregular, irregular mm. contributor, uh, Neil Channing, which means that this week the pastry selection mm, will diminish. Are you already got... You really mean stuck in? I went for the uh, pan and chocolate. I can confirm that's not a bad one, actually. And it is real. <laughs> very much so, yes, yes. As are you. And Tim, great to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. Pleasure. I, I was saying to Charlie, it's been a busy week for him. Uh, I would imagine you've had a fair, a fair amount of heat from, from some of the owners saying to you, what's going on, Tim? What are we doing? Where are we running? Exactly that, really. It's lots of questions going on at the moment. It's, it's a difficult one. Obviously, it's a very uh, delicate situation at the moment with um, the boycott and the race courses all having their opinions. I think we all know effectively what we want to achieve. The biggest issue is how we actually achieve that, really. And as far as, as you're concerned, you've obviously received quite a lot of correspondence and I imagine you're on this WhatsApp group, the 145 trainers or whatever, all trying to correspond with each other, which must be a complete nightmare when you wake up in the morning and see however messages that people have been sending at two o'clock in the morning. Um, how, how would you try and approach that with your owners, given that you've actually got quite an important job to be doing at the same time? Well, in, in this scenario, a lot of my owners haven't actually got too involved in it. Obviously, it's, it's been driven predominantly by the trainers and, and, and the boycotts more so than the owners albeit owners are obviously involved uh, from my perspective you know there's people better informed really about all the situations so I've sort of let them get on with it really but from from a personal perspective obviously what we would like to achieve or certainly what I would like to achieve is you know a, a, a minimum level which is of a standard whereby if an owner has a winner or two every year that it should go towards paying for that horse's uh, training because fundamentally what I find if you have winners you have a a good feel factor from your owners if they earn a few pounds as well they'll reinvest in the business which from my perspective i'm running you know run effectively running the business training racehorses if they don't keep spending uh, i don't have so many horse in training and the cycle starts so that's what we you know i personally would love to see is is sort of a, a lower level that's that you know something like five thousand pound minimum to every winner and then we go forward now how we achieve that is obviously a delicate situation and the race courses have their issues and the media rights and all the rest of it. But uh, again, that's more the likes of Charlie. This debate has been going on for as long as I can remember yep. watching horse racing on television, Neil. Back in the early 1980s, I would sit and watch Channel 4 Racing and John McCurrick yep. would say, prize money is not important. It's not nothing to do with prize money. Owners have no right to prize money. It is a hobby. They have no rights to prize money. What's your view? 
Uh, well, I, first of all, just quickly, because I'm sorry, I couldn't help thinking about it. If, if I was in a WhatsApp group with like 145 trainers, I'd tune in at like 10.30 in the morning and say, oh, sorry, lads, just woken up. <laughs> that would be a really <laughs> good wind-up. <laughs> um, but uh, I did see that. I don't know if you saw there was a good letter in the Racing Post this morning. Somebody was talking about the difference between the mean and the median uh, because they were saying, well, you know, an average uh, owner gets back 28p in the pound, uh, but it's massively skewed. And if you take the median... Uh, because you know so much money is in the top of the pyramid, uh, and if you if you look at the uh, you know the people lower down, uh, the median for for jumps is like three and a half p in the pound, uh, which you know obviously is horrendous. But then that kind of begs the question: Well, if people still want to come into it, knowing that they're going to get three and a half p in the pound, uh, maybe you can have the John McCurrick view. I mean, Tim and I were chatting earlier. I mean, I obviously the whole thing is about. You know, trying to get a court from a pint pot, isn't it? Really, you, you know, everyone's pulling in different directions, and everyone has a good point of view of why they should get as big a slice of the pie. But uh, you know, Tim and I were talking earlier about, uh, say, for example, graduation chases or novice chases, that kind of thing, where we've often spoken on this program about, uh, you know, the field sizes being a bit small in those uh, and whatever. But that's, you know, you don't really. If you buy a horse and put it into that kind of race, you, you're not really winning prize money in, a, in novice chases. is not really your aim, is it? Your aim is to get a Saturday horse that runs in all the handicap chases in the future or to have a gold cup horse. Uh, so actually, if you kind of had almost no prize money in those races, uh, people would still run in them because they're still growing future stars. And that's the point of those races. Uh, so actually, I mean, I thought this week, um, I, I was in sympathy with uh, Norman Gundle and uh, the people at Ludlow when they were talking about, you know, taking a bit of money out of the middle tier, the, th- the class three races and putting it into the class four races and class five races. Because I feel like, uh, you know, the, the, the equitable distribution of it, it doesn't have to be equal, but the, I feel like the money's not going down the pyramid enough. Uh, there's a bit too, you know, we're having a hundred thousand pound e-bores, uh, but other people are, you know, finding that they, they can't pay the petrol money from having a second mm. prize. There's no competitive sport <clears throat> anywhere globally where the owners of those teams taking part don't receive a financial reward. It's as straightforward <laughs> as that. So to think that owners shouldn't get prize money for running their horses, um, Certainly isn't one that I naturally could 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 um, could agree with. Um, we've seen this in tennis. We've seen this in Formula One. We've, we're, we're in a very similar position to a number of those sports. Um, how it's distributed and how it's collected are two very very big questions. Uh, as far as as you're concerned, uh, Tim, how much do you think prize money at its levels has impacted on your business? Um, look, you know, I'm not in the top five or six trainers, so it's, it's a different sort of, you know, you've got your top five or six, then you've got your next 50, and then different thing. For me personally, we started, when I started training, it's a different cycle. The, the cost of the horses are far cheaper than they are now. And, and there was lots of races, there was lots of opportunities, and you could target certain races. There would be three, no to 100 chases in, in a week if you target the right one you could give yourself a better chance of winning those races you earned the money but I definitely found that the more 
money that the owners were winning, they would re- continue to reinvest. Mm. Now you're spending a hundred thousand to run in a sixteen hundred pound bumper, and to be frank, uh, it, you know, where does sixteen hundred pound go? It's not even a month's training fees these days, really. Time you've paid the jockey and transported. Mm. So mm. what what incentivises them? I think. Uh, what I sort of agree with Charlie, we, we've got to have prize money. That is, it's a feel-good fact. If they see their Weatherby's account going up, you can usually uh, try and extract that to go again, which is what it's all well, about. By the way, I wasn't, you know. I wasn't really yeah. arguing no, no, for the yeah. John McCree, no, no, no prize no, no, money. No, I but I mean, if, if, you look at, if you look at some of the races at Cheltenham, you know, the, you can look at out of the county hurdle and you can say, well, hang on a minute, that's 30 grand lower than yeah, the, exactly. the Betfair hurdle. Yeah which is just a month earlier and virtually the same kind of race. It shows that people are not totally incentivised by money at that level. They just want to win a race at Cheltenham. And the experience that goes with it. Yeah, of course. Absolutely, and they're two of the critical things here. Mm. Is the fair reward, financial reward, and the experience. I think... think just touching mm. on that, you're 100% right, because as we know, some of the Cheltenham Prize money races aren't as much as other races, as we know at the, uh, the Grand National Festival meeting and the like. But I think what it boils down to, there are some people with the financial power to spend £10 million a year mm. on racehorses and actually win no prize money, and they could continue to do that. The more modest uh, spending owner, shall we say, uh, doesn't have that financial capability of just continually spending. So therefore, it's trying to get the, the balance between winning a few pounds and having a bit of support. So is, is what I said right then, that the money should be uh, flow down a bit more and take it off the top two or me, three levels? For me personally, it, it, there is a distribution imbalance somewhere mm. throughout the system. However, by taking that higher level prize money away from race uh, the, the, the the better races devalues the British racing sport and, and then, we can't compete with a foreign country. The other thing I saw this week was uh, 2008 with pre-financial crash, yeah. you know, everybody's making loads of money, property markets sky high. You were making uh, loads of money then too. I don't know, I, it seems like it, you know, I don't know what happened to it. Uh, but... Uh, you know, there were, there were uh, 1,200 race meetings a year in 2008. Uh, there's 1,500 now, and there's been 1,500 the exactly. last three years. Goes back to Charlie's I point. mean, isn't, isn't, you know, we're in a more of a recessionary times. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot less money splashing around generally. Uh, we've also had this other thing that Tim and I were just talking about off air, which is, you know, the development of all weather to the detriment of the natural hunt game. Uh, there's, there, you know, there's a huge body of horses that want to run in all weather races, yeah. you know, twice a week or whatever, and there's not so many that want to run in, uh, you know, Absolutely. handicap hurdles. Mm. I'm going to draw a line under prize money just for the time being. We can revisit it later You're in the no program, fun. but I, I do want to have a look back at some of yesterday's racing. And Newbury, in fairness, they put on okay prize money yesterday for a Saturday. They got rewarded with pretty good fields. And part of the, the key to their card yesterday was the creativity in the races that they showed. There was a veterans race. There was a seniors handicap hurdle. The races filled very well. The feature race was the Greatwood Gold Cup. It was a ninth win in the race in 20... Uh, I beg your pardon, a ninth win in the race in 13 runnings, would you believe it, for trainer Paul Nichols, who now has a, a break of nearly half a million pounds over Nicky Henderson in the Trainers' Championship. It was San Benedetto, the winner of the white cap in about six at the moment, and a third win in the race for Nick Schofield, having taken it on Cornish set and New Little Brick. And that really, uh, Tim, was one of the stories of the race. Paul Nichols was very pleased to, to give one of his old allies a big race winner and get one of his horses back on point, something which he has a canny knack of doing. He certainly does, of course, Paul. You know, we all know he can train 
as good as anyone training but he that that horse in particular obviously disappointed the last i think he finished last uh, the time before in 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 january but fundamentally that horse had dropped on the handicap a bit back to more like a winning mark that he'd had in the past and obviously Paul had him on song his horse are flying at the moment and uh, you know I'm sure he's pleased to get a win out of him really here he is I just wondered at this point Neil would he find for pressure because he's a horse who essentially mm. had forgotten how to win but he really did yeah he definitely yeah I was busy watching uh, my horse winning the race with no jockey on that's happy uh, diva, that's <laughs> happy diva who's fine happy diva yeah I bet happy diva but uh yeah, yeah, obviously he's got Frodon in the same colours as well. I, I, I mean, talking about, you know, prize money and trainers, uh, you know, Nichols is brilliant. In t- sorry to bring it back to that, but Nichols is so brilliant in that he sort of says, I, I don't personally think he's going to have a, like a super-duper Cheltenham because he doesn't mind firing a few darts in the weeks up to yeah. Cheltenham where other people are a bit quieter. You know, he had that weekend, uh, was it two weeks ago now, with, you know, Eight a gazillion winners. winners. Uh, and and made all that money and uh, I you know I feel like it's hard to do that and then be ready for a big Cheltenham as well but I I don't think he minds quite well I'm, I'm sure he wants to win absolutely everything because he's totally driven but I, I, I think he's quite good at like picking his punches really I think I think that is driven fundamentally by numbers mm. you know if you've got the numbers mm. you can obviously it's a great asset if you've got lots of numbers you can. Mm pick races if there's low entries in there mm. you can stick in your two or three horses and yeah. usually Paul's horses are level weight horses mm. so there's mm. sort of 125 130 plus you can go and nick that novice hurdlers there like he did that that day at um, the yeah. fortnight ago and that's why he could send two horses up to Kelso he sent three horses up to Kelso he mm. sent two good horses that's up to Kelso absolutely, yeah. they mm. both got beaten mm. at short prices but it wasn't a disaster no, exactly. yeah, live to fight another day this is Black Courtney <laughs> won eight races last year he hasn't won a race this year he's never, finished second four really times never really jumped fluently yesterday did it really in the early stages it was never really I don't know I didn't really feel like it was ever comfortable but you know with him that this is a horse who once it's got a bit of slack from the handicap, mm. once it's run a few more times, at some given point in time, oh, he'll, spring, he'll spring I'll, I'll back to life. Yeah, I'm it's a no, big fan. It's no different to yesterday's winner for him, is it? They, they find their mark, they find their mm. level, they climb, 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 on, you know, they're on a crest of a wave, they hit that level, they come off the curve, and then all of a sudden there's five, six, seven, eight runs before they win again. Sounds so, easy to me. It's just the way the system Sounds is, easy. isn't it? You know, it's designed for that. I to get you back to prize money, but you know, we are watching... <laughs> Four runners at Kelso. They've had way more prize money than you did yeah. yesterday, and uh, way less runners. We, so, dis- we discussed this, but it's a, this was a conditions race. Mm. Yes. You put on a conditions race for this type of horse, you are never going to get a. Of course, field. I no. understand no. that. And, and it's a question of the right races, isn't it? But exactly. also, a lot of people talked about the ground. I mean, what do you think about that, Tim? Like this ground is this yeah, perfect look, jumping ground. I, I, isn't I can't say it was the ground yesterday. I would say exactly that. There's no harm in it. It's safe for all horses. It boils down to that type of race fortnight before Cheltenham some people might take their chances in the handicaps of Cheltenham because that's what people mm. inevitably do but also you know whatever way you dress it up there's lots more bad horses than there are good horses and mm. the further you go up the pyramid in terms of handicap there's far less horses hence why we have King George's some years with five six runners and the, mm. the Christmas hurdle five six runners it's just the Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Put some meat on the Gold Cup bones then now. Nicky Henderson joins us on the line. Nicky has been at Newbury supervising the last-minute preparations of three of his very strong uh, Cheltenham Festival team. Morning, Nicky. Nick, morning to you. Hi. Big morning for you this morning. Am I right? Santini might bite on the blind side. All had a spin round the fences at Newbury? That's right. There, we've just, just finished. And That's how'd you go? Right. <laughs> 
bit different to last night. I had to take one out of the bumper because I thought it was too quick, but it's the soft ground this morning. Yeah, because you had some rain overnight, which was which yeah. was great for schooling. You did school, didn't you? We did. We jumped. Um, they all jumped ten fences, and then just had a spin up the straight. So, just looking at them, what are your observations on the three? Well, I think that was good. I mean, this is mainly because we missed races um, through the. Uh, let's just call it the flu, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, they, I, I needed to get something into, the, especially the two novices, Santini and on the blind side. Um, and as much as that, uh, might bite as well. And he he just he jumped the he, we jumped the, let down the back twice, and then just let them stride up the straight. Uh, and they all went well. Or jump, might bite. I do think he's in very very good order. Nicky was so good. Um, you know, he's got to bounce back because he's run in the King George was, Um I mean, his Betfair run wasn't great, but I don't know. I always think Haydock doesn't always show up the same results as you get elsewhere, but. Um, and it's not often the guide, but they, even so, uh, we were very pleased with him. And uh, his work's been very good the last couple of weeks, and today was great. And you did tinker with his wind a little bit. Can you can you notice an obvious difference because of that? Do you no. think or not? No. Yeah, he wasn't making any noises. It was more of a hunch than anything. Okay. He wasn't making any noises at all. We didn't hob them. He would just. With these soft pallets, it, it's, a, it's a very good procedure, but it doesn't necessarily last forever. So you have to keep tightening it up. Of horses, they need doing again. And as it was over two and a half years ago when we first did it, I just took an assumption that, listen, we've got to do something. Whether that's quietly was... I don't know, but he's in great shape. And um, you know, it usually does help them when you do that. Okay, and Santini, uh, he's been toward the front of the market for the for the RSA for a long time. Even though he was he was beaten at Kempton, comparisons have been made with Bobsworth because he was third in the Corto Star and went on to win the RSA. Uh, how happy are you with him? Well, that was good. I would like to run in the Reynolds Town. I must admit at Ascot, um, but we were forced out of that. So that's what we were doing today. Um, and no, great. He's in, he's in good shape. He is a big horse. He takes quite a lot of work. So it's been. Um, you know, we've had to press a little bit, um, but today was a big step forwards. And, I mean, you won't need to do an awful lot more work now. And on the blind side was horrible first time and pretty damn good the next time. Um, exactly. Uh, well, you... it was my mistake, two and a half miles around Cheltenham. I, I keep saying I won't run horses at Cheltenham first time over fences. And um, keep thinking, oh, this is good. It, it, it won't worry him. Well, it did worry him, you know what I mean? But then when he went to Kempton, he takes a little bit of warming up and... and you know, it, it's, he was a bit the same just over the first couple of fences today, but the second time he was really, really good. Uh, Nicky, thanks a lot. Good luck. Not at all, Nick. Thank you. Nicky right. Henson, who has worked three horses at Newbury this morning. And that, this, this positive vibe behind Mike Bike, that's a, that's a recurring theme the last couple of weeks. That would be probably as good as any of his training performances if he got him back. It certainly would for me because uh, you tend to find horses, they need to thrive, they need to c- come into a race like that at that level. If he was competing in a, an ordinary chase somewhere where he's far superior to everything and he went and won that and then started to thrive, it would be far easier. But going into a race where actually he is competing against horses of, you know, within reason, the same ability, it's very, very tough to come back from, from you know, those two defeats and, and going on. For me personally, I think it's an uphill struggle for him. And you know about running horses in the heat of battle, Tim. You look mm-hmm. at that Gold Cup from mm-hmm. last year. We saw Native River there, and Joe Tizzard was making the point about competing at the elite level. You're pushing horses into what Aidan O'Brien calls the red zone mm-hmm. there. And exactly. last year's Gold Cup was a, was a prime example of that. Oh, it certainly was. You know, it was, well, Hammer and Tongs, really, Native River, that, you know, he, he sort of, 
puts his heart into it, doesn't he? And, and of course, Nico probably might bite at a far easier run because he's such a lovely horse and travels, whereas really Native River, is, is he's all out all the way, isn't he? But mm. but it's only that way that he's, he takes the, the the speed out of everyone else, really, and he grounded out, didn't he? But, you know, it, it, it's bound to leave marks on horses like that, you know? Have you had a bet in the Gold Cup yet? Uh, I had a little bit on album photo, but I, I, I'm not really... Not, I don't feel like I've had a bet in it yet. No, I'll revisit it. But I wouldn't bet Mike by it. I, I, I actually feel like both, you know, like that race can really bottom them out, can't it? And they, maybe they don't come back from a race like that. I don't know. That was a, that was a, looked like a hard race last year, didn't it? For, for me personally, I'd say it's more of an effect for Native River than Mike Bike. Mm. Mike Bike to Traveller, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the, like Clanders Oboe. Native River's more of a dim and slogger, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. they give Sacrilege so much. to even mention him in the same well, way. Well, a slogger, you know, like a proper hard Sac- nut. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of Denman, Clanders Oboe, I, th- I, I thought if. Paul Nichols would be quite happy if the Gold Cup was this week. He looks so mm-hmm. well in his skin, his coat yeah, looked yeah. magnificent well, in the sunshine. Are actually buzzing, aren't they? Yeah. they certainly are. Another man who's got his horses mm-hmm. in great form is Mick Shannon. We're going to have a, a word with him in a minute. But that is really beginning to gather some steam. The alliance between Henrietta Knight, who retired, mm. and Mick, and buying these lovely horses for the Radfords, and now they've got three horses with decent chance at the Cheltenham Festival. Uh, yeah, I bet, I bet uh, his horse last year on day one, and I've I th- I bet it again on day one in the Ultima. Uh, what the hell is it called? It's called Mr Whitaker. Mr. We're going to be hearing about him very one. shortly. Here he is. Here he is jumping wow. two out. I have had a bet here, Nick. Yeah. And he beats Rather Be in last year's Close Brothers Novices Handicap yeah. Chase, and he goes for the Ultima over I three miles I you were going to show me that. Well, well we don't just throw this program together, you know, Neil. Have another pastry. No, I'm all right for a second. So why have you, why have you backed him this time round? Well, I mean, partly, mostly because of this. And you're right, his horses are in good form. And, it, you know, he's probably underrated, isn't he, Mick Shannon, in terms of what he can do as a trainer? Well, possibly. I mean, he's won so many group races on the flat. But now, as I say, with this mm. allegiance with, with Henrietta Knight and getting the, the Radford horses, it's, it's, it's really come good. Yeah, it certainly has, yeah. It, look, we all know Mick's a brilliant trainer. So he's probably just never had the ability or the owner in that yard to give him the, these types of horses, young, progressive, uh, store horses that are coming through through the ranks. Now he's got them. Mm. There's no question he'll deliver with them on the day as, as, as good as anyone. And Glenn Forcer in the yeah. in the Arkle. If you'd said even a month ago Glenn Forcer would be vying for favouritism in the Arkle, people would have said you were completely bonkers. Well, it is a race that looks like it's going to cut up, though, isn't it, really? I mean, I could easily see there being sort of five, six runners in the Arkle. So, I mean, you wouldn't really want... I don't think I'd want to lay it at this stage. I think it, I think it looks more of a bet, if anything. Although, personally, I'm a little bit more of a Laylor fan. And we have, of course, Laylaw's trainer, Kelly Willicott, on last week. Uh, Charlie, are you allowed to bet in your capacity as Chief Executive of the Racehorse Owners Association? Actually, it's something that I haven't looked at, so because I don't bet. So I'm not, I'm at not all. sure. I, I'm the worst gambler in the world, and I recognise that pretty early on. So I'm the second my, worst gambler in the world, but it doesn't my, stop me. My, my, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't bet. I might do a lucky 15 on the day just for a bit of fun, just to see me through the like day. feels like Charlie's but, um, still got a bet 365 account um, that we could use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Charlie. <laughs> L-I-V. You're just rings up But you have been involved in a lot of horses, both yourself, and then when you were racing manager, Robin Geffen as well, and you had a stack of runners at Cheltenham, so you know more than anyone what it's like to, to actually get there with a, well, I was going to say a live chance. Yeah, I mean, you're right in the thick of the pressure pot now. I mean, every day and every every canter and mm. every evening feed and every morning stool counts. 
and 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 you hope to God not yeah. one of those. Keep him on. He, yeah, yeah. It, so it, 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 the jigsaw on. continues to be built. Do you miss it? Do you miss being involved at the sharp end? Yeah, I said you were I a pupil assistant to Dick Hearn, Richard Hannan. You've worked for vets. I, I came into racing because of the horses, and um, I I was very competitive as a child, and racing was got me that that mix of competitiveness and and, and working with the animals. And I did, and I, I I left school and went and spent four, five, six years working with trainers and vets and what have you. Do I miss it now? Um, I have to say, on a really nice crisp. <laughs> Blue morning, when I'm walking into work, I do think, oh, second lot would be lovely. Yeah. But I have to say, I, I no, there isn't a burning ambition to to get back. Um, but that's because I'm really enjoying what I'm what I'm doing and who I'm representing, and trying to take the industry forward to a place where we can all be in a much, all of us can be in a much better place. Well, I was talking about Mick Shannon's horses. Delighted to say he joins us on the line now. Mick, good morning. Morning, Nick. How are you? Very, very well. And you're turning up to Cheltenham with three horses with excellent chances as well, which must put a spring in your step this rainy morning. Well, it certainly makes the winter that much better. But, <laughs> you know, we're pleased with the rain. The rain's just interfered with the television. So I missed, you. I, I missed the horse winning just now. We saw the first part and it got cut off. Well, you missed everybody saying lots of lovely things about you. And to be honest with you, self-praise is well, no praise. Well, human. So. Uh, let's let's talk about last year's winner, Mr. Whitaker, because Neil was saying he's backed him again this time for the for the Ultima. Yeah. He is a horse now. He's looking like a trip might suit him quite well. Well, you know, we always thought he would be a three miler, and consequently we had him in the Gold Cup and everything. But uh, I mean, that that went astray a little bit when he got beat uh, by his surname and what have you. But surname come out and beat everything else. Yeah. Didn't he? But, we're very pleased with him. He's in great form. He seems to be in the form of last year. We freshened him up, and uh, well, you, the only thing is the automobile, you know, can be a bit of a slog, can't it? You know, and there's a lot of runners, and he's a horse that really needs to be held up. And as long as he gets no problems in in in, in running, I think he, he certainly goes there with a good chance. You know. Now you built up a nice partnership with uh, Johnny Burke, who I was speaking to yesterday. What about his riding? Do you like and admire? Well, he's just a good horseman, isn't he? Everything about him. He's a good lad. He comes in and sits on him. And, you know, he, like I say, he, uh, you know, the people that, 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 you know, a lot of these lads that jump, they're just, you know, all top class and hardworking lads and they get everything they deserve, you know? Uh, Glenn Forster, we were saying if you'd said a month, six weeks ago, he'd be vying for favouritism of the Arkle, people would have thought you were a bit bonkers, even though he'd shown himself to be a good horse. But he's showing himself to be a bit better than just a good horse now. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you could take that that last race, you know, on face value, you know, I mean, you'd say, you'd say you go there, we go there with a great chance, you know. I mean, are you inclined to take it at face value? Well, uh, I, I take him at face value because he's a good, honest horse. You know, he pops out and he, he goes about his work and he jumps great. There's, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that, uh, there's no downside to it. You know, there's nothing that doesn't fit. He's, I was a bit worried that over two miles they might get him on his head and he might not jump as well. But listen, the, the way he went about it the other day, you know, I mean, I couldn't fault him. And uh, you know, the owner was keen because he was in the the, the other race, the two JLT. and a half mile race. Yeah. Um, and that looked to be, you know, the, we run him over nearly three miles first time, and he and he won. And then we brought him back to two and a half. We thought he was a good thing that day, and we thought that was his trip, you know. Um, and he won at Kempton. But the owner was, was mad keen to have a go at two miles. And, you know, when we went to Sandown, he had to be right. So, you know, but he's a good horse. I mean, the good thing about him, he, he turns up and he's solid. He jumps. He, you know, 
he's honest as the day's long, you know, and I just, my only worry was that they'd get him on his head, they'd go flat out, and, you know, he, it might disrupt his jumping a bit, but um, Sandown was brilliant, you know, he took him on and jumped upsides him, and, you know, he's not frightened of anything, he's a, he's a good jumper, and Hen's done a great job on that score, and everything else has fallen into place. You mentioned the, the association with Henrietta Knight, and it was her retirement that, that meant that the Radford horses came to you. Yeah, through, it, through her and Terry Biddlecombe, bless him, you know. Exactly, and that, that's been a fantastic partnership. It must have just added a whole new dimension to your game, really, and given well, you an enormous amount of pleasure. Well, that's right. But, you know, when Terry was still alive, you know, I mean, I got to know Tim and he became a friend, you know, because I've said to him many times, you know, I don't know why you have your jumpers with me. I train flat horses. But the great thing is, if they're good horses, it doesn't matter. And, you know, he only sort of deals in quality most of the time. If they're no good, he gets rid of them, you know. Or, you know, but he turns his horses over very quick. You know, I think it's a good thing. And, um, you know, he, he, he's, we've managed to put a good team. Well, Hen and, you know, and, and everyone else, has, as, as well as me, has, has all been part of it. But we've put some nice horses together. Mm. And I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I think he's a very good horse that runs on Friday. Um, what's he called? Hold, hold the note. Hold the note, yeah. I mean, if he runs, that is, you know. I mean, I don't know whether he'll get in, but he's a very, you know, he's got so much ability. I mean, he can go with flat horses here, you know. Um, so he's got speed and he stay, you know, he stay three mile, not a problem. But um, you know, I think we go there with, with three great chances. On the first day, we got two very good chances. Glenn Forser, Mr. Whitaker. This is Hold the Note winning at uh, Huntingdon, and he goes. He got, I think beat, at, he got beat at beat, Huntingdon. But, second Huntingdon. You know, he's a horse that really needs holding up, not seeing any daylight, and you know, get there late. I think he. Listen, we're not certain to run him, but. Um, the other two are, are definite. Mick, thanks so much. Best of luck. Not a problem. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. So I'd say that my next guest is one of the most successful sports people this country has produced. She is a multiple Olympic gold medalist, a multiple world champion in her cycling pursuit. And thereafter... Following her retirement, she began to turn her hand to all manner of extraordinary challenges, the first of which was to ride in the Cheltenham Fox Hunters with but a year's riding experience under her belt. Everybody said that it couldn't be done, but she proved them wrong, as she has done everybody throughout her entire life and career. She has just returned from a period surfing in Costa Rica, her latest daredevil challenge. Last year, she attempted to climb Everest, which had some pretty significant consequences for her. She is one of the most interesting figures in sport, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now, Victoria Pendleton, CBE. Welcome to Luck on Sunday. Oh, thank you for having me. And great to have you back in the in the racing fold after what's been three years. I can't believe it's three years since Pasha de Polder in the Fox Hunters. No, I can't believe it either. Um, I... I'm really excited about going to Cheltenham to watch uh, to watch the Gold Cup day, the last day, and to see the Fox Hunters again. I wish I could go back and start from the beginning. I would 100% do it all over again, a thousand times over. I loved it so much. I mean, everybody said there was no way you could do it. Yeah. Even for all your dominance in your own sport, and a sport that has significant risk and significant danger and significant athletic prowess reply, uh, uh, required, <laughs> nobody thought that you could actually complete the, the, the Cheltenham Festival. Uh, I know, and it, I wasn't sure, to be honest, at the start. It was such an audacious challenge. You know, it was kind of, um, to even suggest it seemed ludicrous, but I loved every second of it. Within about 10 minutes of my first ever riding lesson, I was like, this is the most fun I've ever had. 
I knew instantly that I wanted to pursue it. When you look back at this, can you actually remember each and every part of the race, or did it go by in a blur? I mean, all races go by in a blur. The first time you ever race, they're going to be like, try and enjoy it, because it's going to be a blink and it's going to be over because you're focused on what you're doing. Um, and there's certain parts of the race I remember, and I remember just really concentrating on my instructions, which were to sort of stay back, keep to the rail, horses tend to fall out from the rail, um, and then the race will open up and just give him a shout and a push. And that's what happened. I had no idea he was going to come so well at the end. If I'd known, I perhaps would have started a bit earlier. But, um, it, oh, he's just so good. I love that horse so much. I, when I watch him, honestly, that was one of the greatest moments of my life, I can honestly say. I'm so happy. I can see you're reliving it all. You look there oh, in a state wow. of complete shell shock. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I think I was. I mean, ultimately, I was like, I want to get round in one piece. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much about looking for a result. Ultimately, everyone wanted to me to be safe. And I was advised, you know, like, if you need to pull up, remember, you can pull up. And I was like, I want mm. to get round. I really want to get round. And uh, that, I mean, Pasha de Polder looked after me every step of the way. And it's about the horse and the right horse. And he was the right horse for me. You were playing quite a high stakes game because... You can't have been oblivious to the fact there were plenty of people saying she shouldn't be doing this. Oh, yeah. She's actually a danger not only to herself. To the but, rest of the field, yeah. But, but to everybody mm -hmm. else. How did you cope with that? Well, I made sure that I had the right people around me coaching and supporting me, having the right team in Yogi Breisner, in Paul Nichols, in Alan and Lorne Hill, who were the point-to-point -point crew that I was, was um, training with them. And I left it up to them to decide whether they thought I was ready for it. Mm. And... They're professionals. So if they said, no, we don't think you're, you're competent right now, I won't ride. And I was very comfortable with that decision and, and letting them, between themselves, decide whether it was appropriate or not. Um, and there were some ups and downs, as there is with all manner of equestrian sport, um, in particular racing. But um, I was very pleased. I got 30 races under my belt before, before Cheltenham in that year. And um, I was so fortunate to be able to ride. And... I feel so blessed and so honoured that someone up there was watching me and got me round. And the fact that having the opportunity to ride a horse like Pasha de Polder, an absolute gentleman. I mean, I could school him in the fog with my eyes shut. Mm. He's, he was very capable, very competent. He looked after me the whole way. So I, I feel very blessed to have been able to enjoy a ride with a horse as, as wonderful as he is. To what extent did he and the whole riding experience fill a gap for you at the oh. time that needed to be filled? Because... You retired in 13, mm -hmm. didn't you? From in 2012, immediately 12. after, yeah, the, immediately Olympics, after yeah. the Olympics. So 30, but what I mean is 13 was your first year where there wasn't much mm -hmm. happening apart from lots of media attention. Mm. Uh, in order to, to satisfy what you needed to do sort of physically and what you needed to do mentally, how, how much of a gap did he fill? Oh, the whole Cheltenham Challenge was such a blessing. Um, it gave me a structure to my day and I was really after sort of retiring from from full-time sport like having something to get out of bed for and mm. train for and focus on was something I really missed and I love having a challenge and I enjoyed every second of it and I was very willing to accept the risks and you know the injuries and everything that comes along with learning to ride horses as a small price to pay for the joy of being able to to jump a horse over a steeplechase fence because there's nothing quite like it it feels like you're flying um, it's a not it's an honor I can't, ex I can't even express really how it makes me feel. I could honestly be sick with the joy of it sometimes. Oh. Like I've eaten all the Easter eggs before breakfast. Um, 
it's just such a wonderful feeling. Feeling, I don't know, no, and nothing in my life has ever compared to it. Like having that that partnership with a horse is something very very special. It's magical. It's it's otherworldly. You can't really explain it. It's um, it's something that sort of it gets right into your heart. It's not something you just do like a sport and you train for it. And it's fun, whatever. It's something that that connection with a horse is something that mm. is beyond words in many ways. Could you ever get that high, for want of a better word, when you were when you were cycling? No, no not way. E- not even close. I mean, there's a there's a sense when you achieve your goals and you're on the podium listening to your national anthem. It's a very it's a wonderful moment and a, a very special moment, and you you know you feel it in your heart and your soul, and it's incredible. But Riding a horse is very different. It's, it makes you feel alive. It makes you feel like it's an extension of your body. It's incredible. I can't explain it. A bike is a machine, but a horse, that's another heart. It's something completely different. Without sounding too airy-fairy, it's something very, very different. And I can understand why people are so passionate about racing and passionate about horses and training. And It's, um, it's difficult to explain unless you've done it. And if someone had tried to explain that to me beforehand, I thought they were, I would think they were talking rubbish, you know. But now I completely understand and, and, and agree that it's something that something that doesn't really compare. So special. When you were when you were cycling, did you experience significant adrenaline peaks and troughs, or did mm. you have to try and keep because you were a professional and you had so much pressure on? Did you just, did you have to try and keep it incredibly even? Yeah, I think because there was such high expectation of the performance of the team, we're mm. a very very successful team. There wasn't anybody on the cycling team who wasn't already an Olympic <laughs> champion or a world champion. You step up into that squad and you're like, wow, the pressure is on. So very much. It was all very expected, so the the pressure and expectation was a load to carry. And it's sometimes hard to appreciate and enjoy your success when you kind of are expected to, because you're always like, it's almost like, phew, got through that one, what's next? Rather than elation and joy. Whereas when you're riding a horse, you can't fully know or predict what's going to happen. My performances on the bike were calculated within a tenth of a second, Mm. On a horse, you're working with another brain there and it, you know, might not always go to plan. So it kind of alleviates that that pressure and expectation in some ways because you can only do what you can do in that moment with the horse and hopefully you communicate in the right way. But it removed all the pressure. So when I went in to ride Cheltenham, of course I was nervous. I wanted to do a good job for everybody that had had supported me along along the way. But in some ways there was no pressure because it's like a partnership It was only 50% me and 50% Pasha. So I was like, well, we'll just see how this goes. We'll do our best, take each fence as it comes, let the fence come to us, and whatever will be, will be. Of course, accompanying this journey was an enormous amount of attention, an enormous amount of people like me wanting to ask you questions (laughs) and appearing on much greater television stages and having acres and acres of newsprint written about you and you were very accommodating you could do that but then when you actually went to the races you could see that intensity and focus (laughs) that only a top sports person has is that instinctive or do you find you can you can switch that button fairly easily between the two personae I think it's it's a trained skill so it's something that I've learned over the period of my lifetime in sport is learning when you go into that competition environment that you become incredibly focused and you just your blinkers are on you take in nothing except what is absolutely necessary. It's like you switch the volume off for that moment and, and focus on yourself because you have to, because you only have one chance to get it right. And that's because that's just purely practice over a lifetime of competing in sport. And I think 
Many people saw my Cheltenham challenges, un, you know, unrealistic without taking into consideration the mindset being a big part of it. Physically, quite a difficult thing to do. But I'm, you know, fit and I've got good balance, so that worked well. But ultimately, I think they underestimated the fact that I wasn't a novice going into this situation. I was someone who's experienced high pressure, high stakes um, many times before. But anyone who's read anything about you, anyone who's read your book, anyone who's followed your career, anyone who's seen what you've done since then, anyone who's read about some of the difficulties that you faced mm. knows that if you're one thing, it's someone for whom can't doesn't really enter the equation. Mm. Where did that come from? Where did that start? I don't know. Is it just something you're born it's with? It's an affliction. Um, well, it is in a sense. Yeah, it is. I, um, I mean, a lot of people have kind of suggested it's probably down to my upbringing my dad's very tenacious and very strong and he's always like you know just get stuck in and do it you can do it and hit you know be aggressive and push through a race and just kind of attack every challenge with everything you have um some may say it's because I've got a twin brother so I've always had a sense of competition in my life like anything he can do I want to do and I want to do it better but I don't really know it's almost like unfinished business I have to keep pushing forwards Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Well, I hope you enjoyed that look back on Maydan's highlights last Thursday. Of course, one of the integral parts of World Cup night itself is the addition of American participants. They really add so much to the richness of World Cup evening. And with that in mind, our special correspondent, Christina Blacker, who's based in California, has been catching up with one young rider hoping to strike in Maydan this year. We are here at Santa Anita with 24-year-old jockey Drayden Van Dyke having a huge year and sitting on an even bigger one in 2019. And you're set to make your first trip to Dubai to ride Stormy Liberal in the Alquaz Sprint. It'll be your first experience there. How are you preparing for this journey? Uh, just going to buy a plane ticket or uh, and uh, hopefully Stormy Liberal is ready and uh, I'm ready and very excited to go over there. It's a straightaway course. Is that something that you've ever had any experience on? Uh, you know... Probably my closest ex experience would probably be Kentucky Downs or and even the hill down here uh, in Santa Anita. But uh, it's it's not going to be any different to me. I'll, I'll go walk the course and do what I got to do. Will there be any challenges or anything that you're anticipating that you'll have to really focus on or study up on with regard to the trip? No, I think maybe just my other competition, uh, the other horses and jockeys I'm facing, and uh, I think that would be it. He's a very special horse, and I know he will always be special to you. He gave you your first Breeders' Cup victory. What makes him so unique and just so gritty? Uh, you know, he's, he's for one, he's very talented, and uh, like you said, he's gritty. He likes a little battle, and he doesn't like to win by much, and uh, which makes it kind of crazy to watch. But uh, like I said, talented and just a good horse. He's a horse that, like you say, he seems to kind of know right where the wire is, right exactly what he needs to be. His final prep race here in February, he almost bobbled as you turned for home. It looked like you had victory right there within your hands. What happened in that race? Yeah, he, he was going to win that race for sure in, in my mind. And, and uh, he, he slipped turning for home right here at the quarter pole. And uh, I got a picture from the safety steward here, Louis Hardigy, and uh, sent me a picture of it. And he slipped pretty good. Luckily, he didn't fall down. So uh, he's good. I'm good. And... Uh, scratch that one out and just go to Dubai. What goes through your mind when something like that happens? Do you have a second to gather yourself or do you have to just sort of ride the momentum of what's happening? Yeah, you know, for a second I thought he might have injured himself because he, he slipped and he had a couple few awkward steps after. And so I was 
concerned for him first, and then I knew he was fine, and I and I went back to riding again. But like I said, I lost by a nose, and after all that, and yeah, it's, it's it was unfortunate. He's a warrior. We're looking forward to seeing him uh, in Dubai. For the European audience that are not familiar with you, you were born in Louisville, raised in Hot Springs, two of the biggest racing towns in America. Has this just been in your blood from day one? Yeah, you know, my father was in horse racing his whole life, and uh, my mother and uh, my grandmother as well. So, uh, yeah, it's been been around my, my, my family for my whole life and uh, got, got into it through my father and coming to the racetrack in the summertime at uh, Churchill. So... Uh, caught the bug very early. Who really got you started, taught you how to ride, and kind of showed you the basics? Uh, you know, my father, of course, but uh, very learned my, my main basics with uh, Jimmy Baker at S. Barn. He uh, gave me my first hot walking job and, and grooming and stuff like that. But then uh, Glen Hill Farm gave me my, my biggest opportunity to learn how to ride and uh, break babies for about six and a half months down there and, and came, came to Hollywood Park. What made you choose California of all the places to go? Uh, the palm trees and the constant sunshine. and no, But Proctor kind of made that decision for me, which I'm very happy he did. Uh, love it out here since I've been here and uh, lucky to do good. Did he really shape how you became a rider? Because they focus and have a lot of turf horses. Graham Motion gave you a lot of responsibility with some grade one type turf horses early in your career, which I think is something that isn't always offered to an apprentice was that a skill that you honed very early on yeah and, and Tom Tom taught or he gave me the opportunity to learn that from the start which is very very uh, uh, lucky in my part uh, not not many bug boys get to ride the turf all the time and, and in stake races so Tom gave me that platform which people saw and I, I took advantage of it did good and I just continued to get uh, good opportunities and capitalize on them I think your work ethic is one thing that a lot of people know you for. Where did you get that from? Uh, I don't know. It's Proctor Proctor definitely stamped that into me, and, and my dad did as well. Uh, he said, this game is not easy. It's not an easy job. He said, son, I wish you'd go to college and do something easier. But uh, I loved it, and there's no way he's going to get me away from it. So. Uh. I know you lost your dad a few years ago. Is he just very constant and a part of you when you're out there competing? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, love my dad. Uh, he was he was my, my my best friend, my my role model, and he got me into this. So uh, definitely miss him all the time. But I know he's always with me. You have uh, one sort of person in your life that I know has fulfilled a little bit of that, and that's Mike Smith, the Hall of Famer. I think any rider in the world would love to have him as a mentor. Tell us about the relationship you have with Mike. Uh, yeah, me and Mike are really, really close, which I'm very lucky to say that, uh, like a father to me, and I'm like a son to him, and, but he, we're best friends as well, so, which is, uh, we've had a lot of fun together, and on and off the track, and, uh, I love him to death. Best friends, competitors, out on the racetrack, and a relationship that I know is also a working relationship in the Bob Baffert barn, and that's, uh, I think, what you're sitting on in 2019. Some really exciting horses. Can you give us a couple names and just what you're looking forward to this year? Yeah, improbable for sure. Uh, chasing yesterday, uh, Marley's Freedom. Uh, you're gonna see Roadster today run, um, uh, and a lot more. I mean, I I don't get to ride them all, but the few I do ride, they're they're good ones. So I'm I'm lucky to be in the position. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday. 
the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.